You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I'm glad you're with us. Uh, if you're new to our church, let me just say that the norm in our preaching is to work through various books of the Bible. Once or twice a year, we feel like the Lord is leading us to kind of tackle some specific topic or issue that we think will be helpful uh, for our church. And so we've set aside four weeks uh, this spring to talk about biblical sexuality, and this is the third sermon in that series. Let me just kind of catch you up a little bit if you haven't been with us. In week one, Todd showed us from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that sex is a good gift from God. God created it, God protects it, God blesses it. It's a good gift. Uh, Last week, my friend Bob addressed the ways that our culture distorts God's design for sex. And so sex is a good gift from God, but sex is a terrible God. And like so many good gifts, we're prone to make gifts into God's. And when that happens, uh, when sex is God, it has profound negative impact in our own lives, in our relationships, and just in our culture at large. And so that's why we're doing this series. We want to set forth a biblical vision for sex and sexuality, and then we want in our communities uh, to work out the implications together. So we're talking about these sermons in our small groups. Uh, As Todd mentioned, we'll have a women's forum and a men's forum to continue the conversation. And let me also mention this. Uh, Some of you are dealing with particular difficulties around abuse and addiction. Let me just say, you are not alone in those things in this room. And we have a great wealth of counseling resources, both within our body and without, that we would love to help you with. So any kind of conversation that you want to have, that's why we're having this this sermon series. We want to bring those things to the surface so we can walk in the light and find hope and healing together. All right, so that's our framework for a biblical vision of sex. Sex is good, but it's a bad God. And all of that just gets us to the question that we're going to shift to this week and next week, which is... Okay, what now? Like, nobody in the room is going, yeah, okay, biblical sexuality, got it. I'm all good here. What else you got? Like, nobody's thinking that. Because everyone struggles with this. Everyone has experienced brokenness in their sexuality. We don't all struggle in the exact same ways, but we all struggle. And so the question just is, okay, how do we move forward in the midst of our struggle. The church, unfortunately, um, has not always done a great job of answering that question about how we move forward in the midst of our struggle. Uh, Religious people tend to get really focused on the rules. And when the focus becomes about keeping the rules, you start to get questions like, okay, so where's the line? Like, how far is too far? And those questions, that approach in general, just misses the heart of God when it comes to sex and sexuality. Irreligious circles tend toward the other extreme. This is the the loudest voice in our culture. Um, They're basically just saying, you should do what you want to do. As long as we're talking about consenting adults, then there is absolute license to do whatever you want to do. So whereas religious people are asking the question, how do I keep the rules? Irreligious people are asking the question, why would I keep the rules? Now, as different as those approaches are, they do have one thing in common. 
And that is they're both focused on the external actions of the body. Both of them disconnect the actions of the body from the health of the soul. Jesus came to confront both the religious and the irreligious. He exposes the limitations of just thinking about external issues related to sex and sexuality. And furthermore, he offers, he brings to our real lives hope and healing and restoration of the whole person, body and soul. When it comes to sexual purity, the question with Jesus was never and is never for us, are you keeping the rules? The question is always, are you at home with God? Are you at home with God? I've got two boys in my home, and what does it mean for them to be at home with me? Like, my kids could technically keep all of the rules. Well, they actually cannot do that. That's proven. But let's say they could. Right? That would be great. It would create a lot of good peace in our house. But would that necessarily mean that they're at home with me, Dad? No, their hearts could be far from me. They could be keeping the rules for all the wrong reasons. What it means for them to be at home with me is for us to have a lot of honesty with one another. It means for them to have a respect for me as the dad, but also an ease with me because they trust me. There's mutual affection. But that's what it would mean for them to be at home with me. I was thinking about just the topic of sexuality, and it's interesting, in our homes, that's often one of the most awkward conversations we have. I remember one of the first times I was talking to one of my boys about, we had the talk, we were out doing something, and I just looked over him and I said, hey, do you know how babies are made? He goes, uh, no. I said, I think you do. He goes, yeah. kind of how I feel with you guys. You guys know about sexual sin? Mm, I don't know. I think you do. I think you do. This is what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to be at home with God in our sexuality. And so how do we get there? I just want to give you four, I think, fairly practical, uh, but really foundational steps or things from Matthew 5 to help us become the kind of people who are at home with God in our sexuality. So let's start in Matthew 5, verse 20. Matthew 5 through 7 is one sermon that Jesus gives. It's called the Sermon on the Mount sometimes. And chapter 5, verse 20 is the last sentence in the introduction to the sermon. This is the thesis statement of the sermon, and this is what he says. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven Big words. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is is like shorthand for the present reign and rule of God in our lives. And he's saying there there is a way of life that harmonizes with the presence and the will of God. There's a way to live out our sexuality that God loves and blesses and cheers for. That's what Jesus would call being at home with God sexually. Later in the sermon, in chapter 6, he tells them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this is the first step. This is the first thing. Seek first, before any other thing, God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. In chapter 6, Jesus is addressing the anxiety 
that people are feeling about their lives. They're, they're looking around and they're seeing all the stuff that people have. And they're, they're going, what about me? And they, it just brings a lot of insecurities about the future in their life. And they're anxious. And Jesus tells them essentially, you're anxious because you're focused on the things that you can see. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he will take care of you. So to those who are under the influence of religious, the religious approach, the keeping the rules, Jesus would say this, the issue isn't that you need to do better at keeping the rules, right? The issue isn't that the the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a rule-keeping righteousness, it's not, he's not saying just do better at their game, he's saying you need a completely different kind of game. So it's not do better at keeping the rules, it's you need to have an entirely different approach to what sexual purity even means. As long as you're focused on the rules about sex, you'll miss the presence and the power of God in your sexuality. To those who are under the influence of the cultural approach, Jesus would say, sex is not life. You're not missing out. If if you're focused on the experience of sex, you'll, you'll miss the very presence and power of God in your sexuality. To those who are um, in that influence, for us in this culture, I think there's a, a lot of sexual FOMO out there. How could there not be? It's everywhere. So whether you're single or married, the, the images and the narratives surrounding sex are coming at us all the time, and we're all left to feel like maybe we're missing out. So whether you're not having sex or whether you're just committed to having sex with one person, all of us are wondering because of our culture, are we missing out on something? On top of that, even if you are having sex, you can't possibly live up to the images and the narratives. You can be having sex and still feel like you're missing out. Isn't that crazy? There's a lot of anxiety around these issues, and it's because we're only focused on what we can see. Back up. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will take care of you. Bring all of your fear, all of your worries, all of your insecurities, all of your questions about sex to God. Trust him with them. And he will bring an incredible amount of clarity and order and contentment and joy to your sexual life. Whichever side of the conversation you're coming from, the most important thing we can do is seek God together. Let him confront us. Let him challenge us, but also let him heal us and forgive us. Only he has the authority and the power to do both of those things. We have a video series that we produce um, called Providence Stories. We're so creative in the names. I like to point that out. Um, There was one that came out last year, and it was a a girl in our church who decided she wanted to talk about her, her struggle with sexual immorality. And it was so brave and courageous and so beautiful. And I went back and watched it this week. I just wanted to read some of her, some of her lines to you. So she talked about in her teenage years, it was kind of late night TV stuff in college that sort of turned into internet pornography. And it, and it just lasted into her marriage and she never told anybody. This is what she says. I had seasons of guilt and little mini come to Jesus moments, but I didn't find any healing in those areas. I would feel bad and just try to do better. 
It was the one thing in our marriage that I hated the most. I hated having this secret from my husband and from my friends. And she talks about a sermon where we said just this really normal line of, you have to present every area of your life to God. And she said, I'd obviously heard that before, but in that moment, the Spirit pierced my heart and immediately it broke me. I could hear him saying, you are not offering this part of your life to God. She talks about how she confessed to God and immediately after the service confessed to one of her friends. And then she says this, uh, my moment of change wasn't a big thing that I did differently. My moment of change was when I, for the first time, submitted the issue to God. She says the fruit that has come from that, obviously, is, is self-control, but also joy. A lot of joy from experiencing that God is bigger in my heart and is powerful enough. Will you seek God in this conversation? Not try to justify yourself, not try to just merely get the approval of others through rule-keeping, but will you present this area of your life wholly to God and trust Him? That's the first step. Once you submit yourself to God, you begin to see people differently. And so here's the second thing we see in Matthew 5. Think about the image of God and people. I mean, mull on it, contemplate it, meditate on it. Verse 21. Jesus now begins to kind of get into the guts of our everyday. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, he's the authority. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. Everyone who says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I know what you're thinking. This is not about sex. We, we got off topic. We did a little bit. But this is where Jesus starts. And I think what he says about murder and anger here lays a really good foundation for what he's going to say next about adultery and sex. So I just want to look at this briefly together. He's referencing the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall not murder. Now, according to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the way they would approach this, they would say that keeping this command is strictly about not, you know, murdering someone. And that is, you know, true, obviously. But that doesn't address the whole scope of the command. God doesn't just have arbitrary rules. Why should we not murder someone? Because they're made in the image of God. They have inherent value and worth. They are eternal souls created for glorious purposes. So the baseline rule for how we should think about and treat one another is not to kill each other. That's the baseline. That's not the full picture of God's design for humanity, that we just not kill each other, right? The command isn't here just so you would avoid doing the very worst thing you could possibly do. I've been in a lot of counseling situations where someone says, uh, I'm frustrated with someone, I'm hurt. I've been hurt by them, I'm angry with them. If my only concern was that they not murder people, then the conversation would be super short. My job would be so much easier. I'll be like, identify with your feelings of hurt and pain and anger. Let me ask you this. Did you kill them? No. Okay, good. Are you going to kill them? No? 
Good, I think we're done here. Thank you. <laughs> Have a great day. I mean, that, that would be the extent. So obviously that's not the whole point of the command. Jesus goes beyond the action to the source of our action. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. And you sort of limited it to that very narrow thing. And you think you're okay as long as you're not doing that. But I say, this is the real interpretation of the command. But I say, everyone who's angry is liable to judgment. Everyone who insults is liable to judgment. Everyone who says you fool, which is basically to say you're not worth anything, is liable. Where does murder begin? It begins with cultivated anger. To get angry is not the issue, right? Anger arises in us for all kinds of reasons, some good reasons. There's a righteous anger. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about how we tend to carry anger around, how we feed it to keep it alive. He's talking about how the spontaneous reaction of anger is allowed to progress and become something like resentment or writing people off. And he's saying, you can't write people off because they're people made in the image of God. It's murderous thoughts you're having. He's revealing the dignity and the worth of people. In verses 23 through 26, he gives a couple of examples that we won't cover of just what it would look like to be at home with God in your relationships in this way. And and in both examples, there's a very high regard for people and an eagerness to come together and bring our lives under the lordship and the, the leadership of Jesus. That's what it means to be at home with God. That's life in the kingdom. Okay, this is our foundation for what we're about to talk about. All right? The authority and the glory of God and the preciousness of people made in the image of God. And that brings us to the third thing. So the first thing is seek first God, his kingdom, his righteousness. The second thing is think about the image of God in others. Get that in the center of your gut, in the front of your mind. Third thing, tend to your heart. Pay attention to what's going on in there. Pay attention to the kind of soil you've got growing. Verse 27. Now we get to sex. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Everything we said about murder and anger now applies here. The fact that I do not commit adultery does not mean that I am right with God sexually or that I am at home with others sexually. The question of sexual purity is not just about what you do or do not do. It's about what you would do if you could if the circumstances were just right, if there was no possible way that you could get caught, what would you do? See, that's an issue of the heart. This is why we tolerate lust, I think, because it's private. We can get away with it. We can maintain this external righteousness that others see while the inner dimensions of our life go unchanged. This is the the spirit of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and it always breeds hypocrisy. The question of sexual purity is not, did I commit adultery? It is, am I at home with God in my sexuality? 
To be at home with God sexually means lots of things, but it means, for one, that you're increasingly being freed from feelings of shame and guilt and fear when it comes to sex. Sex is good. It's a good gift from God. To be at home with God means that you can have relationships with people that aren't continuously being tainted by lust and fantasy. Like, you can look at a person and appreciate their beauty and not objectify them. That's what it means to be at home with God in our relationships with each other. Uh, For married people, it means that you enjoy and celebrate sex in all the ways that God intends. You're increasingly feeling the freedom and the joy of what it means to be naked and unashamed with another person. You can't get these things by working from the outside in, by like starting with the rules. These things happen because Jesus transforms us from the inside out. We need a righteousness that is alien to us. We need a righteousness that is from God by faith in Jesus. Verse 28, this is where he takes us. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent on what's going on inside has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So adultery and every other kind of sexual immorality begins in the heart. Lust is to sexual morality as anger is to murder. Let's dig in a little bit here on what Jesus is saying when he talks about lust. Everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent. Now this is more than just seeing a person and having a feeling of attraction. It's more than just seeing a person even and having like a, a feeling of sexual desire. This isn't just seeing, it's looking. It's looking for the purpose of desiring. It's, it's lingering on the look so that you can cultivate and feed sexual desire and fantasy. Obviously, the most blatant form of it is pornography. I mean, there, there is no more, I don't think, intentional cultivation of sexual desire and fantasy apart from God's design. It's everywhere. It's so common even that it has made what's on like, you know, normal TV, which is not really normal at all, become acceptable. That's like a whole discussion in and of itself. But even beyond that, let's just talk about, okay, so we watch the shows, we watch the movies that are, have sexual content. What's going on in your heart when the sexual content comes up? Do you indulge the scene? Let's talk about when you're trying to figure out what show to watch. Just be honest with yourself. Have you ever chosen a show because of its sexual content over another show? That's that's an intent to lust. It's willful going there, willful looking. It's cultivating that stuff in your heart. Even if you avoid the screens, there is real life. And the people in Jesus' day knew just as well as we do what it means to see a person that we're attracted to and for our eyes to follow them, to trace out their body and wonder what that would be like. That happens all the time. Sometimes I'll be in a coffee shop and uh, I'll, I'll be looking at a girl and I'll go down that road a little bit and I'll pull back and then I'll see some other guy do it and I'll start judging that guy. I'll be like, well, I just did that. That's just everyday, everyday stuff. I used to work with this guy named Heavy Heavy. <laughs> that was his name. 
Uh, we worked at a restaurant on the beach in Florida. One day I was sitting out on the, in the break room, which is just this, the back patio of the restaurant with Heavy Heavy. And this break room overlooked the resort pool next door. So we're out there just eating. And Heavy says, well, his friends call him Heavy. Right? So Heavy says, hey, man, look. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I was just like, I just, you know, keep eating. He's like, dude, you got to see this. Look. And I, and I just looked. I was like, no, nah, man, I'm good. I'm good, Heavy. He was like, what are you talking about, man? Just look. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm married. He goes, is she here? Like, what is the problem with you? And he said, we're not hurting anyone. And that's what all, everybody says. I'm not hurting anyone. <laughs> but we are. We're killing people and ourselves. Lust always has an element of contempt in it. It always dehumanizes. It always at its base says that that person is worthless or they're worth only what is good for my use. It affects the way we treat people. Frederick Dale Bruner puts it this way. He says, the other person is no longer really a unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling tinder. I hope the pun is intended. A thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's powers. You just simply can't cultivate lust for someone and actively work for their good at the same time. I had a fraternity Bible study, so don't you think this was the topic every week? One week, I just got tired of talking about it, and they came in. I was like, hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to just think of the last, like, pornography thing that they looked at, you know, I sort of duped them into it. They're all like, okay, got it. Um, And I said, here's what we're going to do. We're all just going to pray for that person. Whoever came to your mind, I want you to just pray for them. They're like, what? No, dude, I can't. Why? Why can't you pray for them? It's a person, right? So they never thought of her as a person before. You, You can't objectify and pray for someone at the same time. The research on pornography increasingly shows the negative effects it has on, on people, on, on the ones watching it. Uh, there's so much, and I won't get into it. I, the one that stuck out to me a, a long time ago is a group of men were just tested and observed watching long periods of pornography, and over time, literally the expression on their face went vacant. They looked like zombies. And the brain activity was similar like, to that of levels of animals. It's, it's hurting us. It dehumanizes the people we're watching and it dehumanizes the one who is doing the watching. And it dishonors God the whole way. Job. At the end of, his, of the book, Job's sort of giving an account, a defense of his life. He's talking about how he's lived a righteous life. and He says, I, I've never gazed at a virgin. Right? He's saying, I, I have been sexually pure. Like just, I have a clear conscience before God. And you ask the question, how, Job? How did you do that? And he says, Job 33, verse 1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes. Right? This is a man who tends to his heart. This is a man who knows that what I let in through my eyes gets cultivated in my heart. And if I want to take care of that soil, I've got I to pay attention to what's going on. He made a covenant, a commitment with his eyes so that he could tend to his heart. Are you tending your heart? 
Are you just letting whatever comes in, come in? Tending to your heart takes intentionality. It doesn't just happen. That's the last thing. So seek first God. Think about the, the image of God in people. Pay attention to your heart. And take some freaking action now. That's the fourth thing. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And in case anybody missed that, let's say it again. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut off your hand and throw it away. For it's better than lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Oh yeah, that's what he said. He said that. Here's a few things. These verses have caused lots of problems and lots of discussions for lots of people for lots of years. Let me just give you some some practical takeaways from what what I see here. One, it is not primarily an external issue, but an internal one. I know he's talking about eyes and hands and cutting things off. I I get that. And and in some sense, there's a reason for that. But in in another sense, I think he's also confronting and exposing the logic of the Pharisees. Because if sexual purity were, were essentially about the external actions of the body, then you could become sexually pure just by removing those parts of the body. But Jesus is saying, and history has proven, because people have done some pretty crazy things, that you can remove any part of your body and it does not take care of the sexual desire in your heart. And so in one sense, he's just exposing. He's saying, stay focused on the prize. What's going on on the inside eventually is what comes out. Work from the inside out. Second thing, this is a big deal. He's talking about hell here. He's bringing up images. He did it with anger and he's doing it with sex. He's bringing up images of judgment and hell. He's trying to say, this is a big deal. Don't underestimate the insidious power that sexual desire has in your life and on your relationships and how it ruins a culture when given to it. Take it seriously. It's a big deal. Third, it's urgent. When he's talking about right relationships, he's like, drop everything, go make it right right now, don't wait. Beat the guy to court, get it settled. And this language around, if something makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it away, there's, there's an urgency to the action required. Don't let this stuff just linger. Don't think that you'll figure it out someday. It grows. It'll take over your life. It's enslaving. There's an urgency. Immediate action. Now look, if we stop there, I'm basically saying, go do better. And that's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It it would just bury you. And so I don't want to stop there. Don't forget the one who is saying these things. Jesus is giving these commands because Jesus himself is the one who makes it possible to walk in them. This is why he came, so that we could have access to God. Peter says that Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. And so how do you seek first the righteousness of God? Through faith in Jesus. 
Jesus unites us into one family, makes us brothers and sisters, so that at the very least in the church, we can have the right view of each other. But then he also shows us that when we look outside the church, we look with hearts of compassion. Jesus sends the Spirit of God to indwell us, to live in us, to change our hearts. God tends to our hearts. And then finally, the Spirit gives us power to take action. You can't do this stuff apart from a vibrant relationship with God through Jesus. I could not help but think of King David this week, and so let me just end with this. 2 Samuel 11, this is what happened to David. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. All right, stop there. I think everything's good till now, to be honest with you. It, it just happened to him. He was on the roof, looking around. He saw one. She was beautiful. Okay, got it. Those are the facts. The issue is what does he do with the moment? He could seek God first. Or he could, in that moment, say, God, what do you want for me in this situation? He could think about the image of God in Bathsheba, not to mention the image of God in her husband. Right, God, what do you want for them? He could pay attention to his heart. He could say, God, help me not indulge and cultivate this desire that I feel in me. There are other times in the scripture in David's life where he prays this prayer where he says, God, search me and know my anxious thoughts. Look inside my heart. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. But he doesn't, there's no such prayer here. He could have done a lot of things, but this is what he did. Verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. He's just inquiring. not hurting anybody. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Like, there's a good friend who's saying, hey, I think she's married, man. I, I know her husband. In fact, yeah, she's married. David was past the point of reason. His desire had grown. It, rules weren't going to work. He wanted her. As an object of sexual desire. Not as a person. Verse 4, so... David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. That's King David. See how the progression works? David's life tragically portrays for us the the power of cultivated lust and the havoc that it brings to people's lives. But... David's life also portrays to us the mercy and the goodness of God towards sinners. In our service today, we have uh, confessed and sung Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession about this very thing, this sin. This is when David finally, step one, seeks God. And God is merciful. 
before we take this conversation anywhere else, right, before you bring it to your communities and to your friends, I thought maybe it would be good for us to take that first step together and seek first God, his kingdom, his righteousness, his mercy toward us. I can't think of a single person who could possibly not desperately need to pray Psalm 51 right now. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to read, and why don't you pray along with David. You may have read this before, and we've read it today together, but I want you to think specifically about this area of your life, this, this question of being at home with God sexually. Have mercy on me, O oh God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.